Hey, and welcome to the 12 Stone Church Podcast. Thank you so much for taking time to be a part of today's message. We hope it inspires you, encourages you, and deepens your faith in Jesus. Enjoy the message. Amen and amen. And so welcome to 12 Stone here live at the Sugarloaf Campus. Let me hear you, Sugarloaf Campus. Y'all awake and alive today? Live across the campuses and at 12 Stone Home and living rooms and tap rooms all over really the world at this point. We're so glad that you're with us. And if you've been around the last couple weeks, you know we're in the middle of a series where we're, we're talking about what are the truths that are unchanging. Like no matter what happens in the world around us, no matter what culture does, what are the truths that never change? And we're sitting inside of the Nicene Creed. As a creed that was formed in 325 AD and the the early church was sort of trying to codify what is absolute truth. Like if we took all of the Bible and put it into like a a bite-sized, fun-sized sort of uh, document, what would be the, the essentials, the unchanging things? And so we're walking sort of line by line through the Nicene Creed so that you can drive the stakes of truth deep in your life. See, a couple of years ago, uh, my family and I got to go to the beach. I'm just curious here across the campuses, how many of you, when you take vacations, you're beach people? Hands up, loud and proud, you're beach people. How many of you, some of like, you're thinking about it right now. Uh, stay with me. We got a little bit, a little bit to go. How many, how many of you are like mountain people? Give me like some shade, some, re- okay. It, wow, you guys are even more excited. Uh, I don't know if it's a third option. How many of you are other? Like, that's the box. If that's you, you're other. Hands up. I don't know what yours are, but awesome. Anyone Disney? I'm curious. Any Disney? That place doesn't do good things for my heart. Anyway, too many lines. So a couple years ago, my family were staying in a condo on the beach, and we spent all morning with the kids and afternoon, and they were making sand castles and sort of tracing their, their name with their feet in the sand, and they made all this cool stuff in the sand, and then the sun started to go down, so we went back up to the condo, ate dinner, showered up, and went to bed. And they woke up the next morning to look out of the balcony to see their wonderful creation. And what they discovered was that there's something called the tide, right? And everything got washed away. The sand was completely leveled again. They were heartbroken. We had to explain science and why, why that matters and what happened, that, that all their creations were built on a foundation that was not going to withstand the tide coming in and out. And that's cute and it's funny when it's kids. It's tough when it's your life. Listen to me, if you build your life on the wrong foundation, when the tides of culture come in and out, everything will be leveled and you'll wake up and go, I'm starting over. And that's why we're in this series. We're not sitting in this Nicene Creed series to make a more intellectual church or a smarter church. We want to help our church know where do you build your life. In fact, that's why we've had this picture of this house with the piers on the coast. If you've ever been to the coast, you've seen houses like this. And, and what they do is they drive these piers deep into the sand, down to the bedrock. And they build the house on top of that because they know that when the storms come, when the waves come in and out, no house can stand unless it's on a good foundation. And that is what we're talking about inside of this series. And so today we pick up the next sort of piece of the Nicene Creed. And if you will, let's, uh, let's look at the piece that we're going to be sitting inside of today. Here it is. Who for us humanity and for our salvation came down from heaven, was incarnate, was made human, 
was born perfectly of the Holy Virgin Mary by the Holy Spirit, by whom he took body, soul, and mind, and everything that is in a man, truly, and not in semblance. Today, we're talking about the person of Jesus. See, week one, we started the series and talked about God as creator, that God is the creator of everything, and that's one of the peers that we build our life on. And if that's true, then we live out of that. And then last week, Pastor Kevin talked about the Trinity. In fact, he used this picture to sort of demonstrate this is a a snapshot of the Trinity. And today, we focus in on the bottom left of that on the person of Jesus. And my aim today is to paint the clearest picture of Jesus that I possibly can. I I don't know what pictures of Jesus you brought with you. Maybe you're a a skeptic or a seeker and you sort of have questions about Jesus. Maybe you walked with Jesus a long time and, and maybe today God wants to sort of clarify who is this person of Jesus. But my aim is to make uh, the clearest picture of Jesus possible. See, let me, let me illustrate. Uh, last year we got pictures done. I want to show you a picture of my three kids. Feel free to ooh and ah. Thank you. That was a, that was a pity all, but I'll take it nonetheless. Those are my three kids, Lincoln, Lizzie, and Luke. And they look perfect in that picture. It's a beautiful, a beautiful picture. But I want you to look at my son Lincoln on the left. He looks cute, doesn't he? He's my youngest. He's eight years old. Well, he got school pictures recently. And just this week, he brought home the folder to try to convince us to buy his school pictures. And here's what the picture looked like. I don't know if he got mugged, like, in the bus. I can assure you he didn't look like that on picture day. Compare the pictures. The photographer just sort of said, they're not going to buy this one. Let's just get the kid through, right? I I don't know what your picture of Jesus is. If I was to introduce you to that kid and that kid, you'd have a different response. That kid looks like he needs some help. That kid looks awesome. did Did I do this just to show you a funny picture I got this week? Yes, I did. But it makes a point. I want you to have a clear and accurate picture of who Jesus is. And we're going to get there by answering four questions. We're going to walk through these questions together. And maybe God invites you to answer a question at the end as well. Here's the four questions. Did Jesus exist? Who was Jesus? What was Jesus like? And then lastly, so what? So what? If this Jesus is all that he claims to be, so what? So we're going to walk through those four questions together. Now, Jesus was one of the most controversial people that ever lived. Like some people love him and give their life for him and other people hate him and sort of do what they can to dismiss and discredit him. But you can't dismiss the fact that Jesus has made his way into everything. If you've ever said ye of little faith, you're quoting Jesus, whether you know it or not. Maybe the only time you hear Jesus' name is when someone stubs their toe or gets angry. I don't know. But this person of Jesus was a controversial person. In fact, Jesus sort of knew that. He knew about himself that everyone had an opinion about who Jesus was. In Mark 8, that's why he asked his disciples, he said, who do people say that I am? Like he's hanging out with his disciples. We're eight chapters into Mark. So like they've done some stuff together. And Jesus goes, disciples, who do people say that I am? And the disciples said, well, some people say you're a good teacher. Some people say you're a prophet. And then Jesus turns it, makes it personal and says, who do you say that I am? And maybe that's the question Jesus is asking all of us. Who do you say that I am? And that's 
where we want to head today. So let's start with the first question. Did Jesus exist? Now, my, my kids are in an age where they love the Marvel movies. It is, I, I try to help them understand, you're growing up in the golden age of movies for kids. Like, this is incredible. Every year you get a movie that's like a blockbuster. When I was a kid, after Back to the Future was over, it was done. There was no good movies. Now we got Marvel movies all the time, and my kids got into it. And several years ago when they were younger, they, they loved it. We got them Thor's hammer for Christmas. And so my boys were so excited, they, they took it out of the box, set it on the floor, and went, and the hammer didn't come to their hand like it did for Thor. See, they had bought into it. Like, like, Avengers is real. The hammer's broke. What's wrong? And I had to explain, like, Marvels are awesome, but Thor's not real. Iron Man's not real. Captain America's not, like, he, in the flesh, not real. They're actors. So was Jesus a real person? Or was he like Captain America or Thor or Iron Man or pick your superhero? See, you don't have to throw away history in order to have faith. You don't have to throw away historians in order to have faith. Just in the Bible alone, Matthew claimed to be a disciple. Mark hung out with Peter, who was a disciple. Luke, who had his doctorate degree and investigated Jesus. John, another guy who claimed to be a disciple. Paul, a prominent Jewish rabbi who threw everything away to follow Jesus. Peter was another guy who claimed to be a disciple. James claimed to be Jesus's brother. Jude was another guy who claimed to be a disciple, and they all wrote about this Jesus character within 50 years of the resurrection, most within 20. Historical documents. Some of you go, okay, that's the Bible. I don't trust the Bible to prove the Bible. Okay. Clement of Rome wrote in 80 AD and claimed Jesus was real. Ignatius of Antioch, Polycarp of Smyrna wrote in about 100 AD and said this Jesus guy was real and he died for what he believed. Josephus, a Jewish historian, wrote about 90 AD and said Jesus was a wise man. He performed surprising deeds, I'd call them miracles, and was a teacher with a large following. And the tribe of the Christians, so named after him, has still to this day not disappeared. How about Tacitus, a Roman historian who told us that Christians got their name from Christ himself? See, even modern-day atheist and New Testament critic Bart Ehrman said this. This guy's an atheist. Jesus existed, and those vocal persons who deny it do so not because they have considered the evidence with the dispassionate eye of the historian, but because they have some other agenda that this denial serves. From a dispassionate point of view, there was a Jesus of Nazareth. So you don't have to throw out intellect. You don't have to throw out history. Jesus of Nazareth walked the earth, and you say, so what's the big deal then? See, the thing that was scandalous about Jesus was not that he walked the earth. It was the claims that he made. See, the thing that, that, that makes him controversial was that he didn't just claim to be a teacher or a rabbi. He claimed something much greater. See, the second question we're going to answer is, who was Jesus? If Jesus existed, he, we have history, we have records of Jesus walking this earth, then who was he? Let's go back to the Nicene Creed. Let's just see this again. Who for us humanity and for our salvation came down from heaven. Talking about Jesus. Why did he leave heaven for us, for our salvation? He was incarnate, which means was made human. Jesus became a human, flesh and blood like us. Was born perfectly of the Holy Virgin Mary by the Holy Spirit. By whom he took body, soul, and 
and mind and everything that is in man truly and not in semblance. The claim that Jesus made is that he was God himself. Think about how scandalous that would have been. For thousands of years, normal people walked the earth and suddenly this guy shows up and says, not only am I a human, I am also God. This is a mind-blowing, earth-shattering thought. So we have to sit inside of this. Here's, here's how scripture would unpack it in Philippians. This is how scripture would say it. Who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Here's what, here's what Philippians is saying. Jesus was one man with two distinct natures. This is like a big, crazy, heady theological thought. You could sit inside of this for the rest of your life, and there's, there's always going to be this mysterious sort of part to this theological truth. Theologians would say that Jesus was simultaneously fully God and fully man. And if you're a math teacher, that's not how math works, right? But he was fully God, fully man. And if you want the $5 theological term, it's called the hypostatic union. The union, the joining of God and man. It's the God of the universe putting on human flesh. One person with two natures. This is a complicated thought, I get it, but stick with me for two more minutes. Because this is a foundational piece of our theology. Here, here's the four sort of pillars of this theological truth. The first is this is without confusion, meaning the Lord Jesus is not what you get when you mix human and God together to make a third thing. It's not mixing yellow and blue together to make green. So they're without confusion. Secondly, they're without change. The fact that Jesus, the God of the universe, stepped into human flesh did not change his divinity. If it did, his sacrifice on the cross wouldn't have meant anything. It was still God. It was without division, meaning the two natures of Christ do not represent a split. Jesus was not half God and half man, like a demigod. And lastly, it was without separation. The union of the human and divine person of Jesus Christ is a real union. Not, Jesus was not two different people. He was one person with two natures, fully God, fully man, united but unmixed. It's a lot of stuff to chew, and I get that. Here's what we need to understand. Jesus had everything that it meant to be human just without the sin, and he had everything that it meant to be God in one person. And there are countless religions on this earth that claim many things about their God, but there is no religion that claims that their God stepped out of heaven, left the throne room, and stepped into earth took on human flesh, creator becoming a part of the creation. See, if your picture of God is a gray-haired, distant deity that's dispassionate about your life, the theology of the incarnation of Christ, Jesus and God, God and human in Jesus, that theology screams that God is not an over-there God. He's a right-here God. That's, that's who we're talking about. He's not a distant cosmic being. He's a personal God that stepped into our circumstances. This is mind-blowing. 
So who is Jesus? Yes, he existed, but who is he? He's fully God, fully man, one person, two distinct natures. The third question is, what was Jesus really like? This is where it starts to get good. Listen, if, if you've ever met a celebrity, I'm just curious. Anybody in the room ever met a, like a celebrity, a sports star, musician across the campuses? Nobody's met celebrities. All right, there we go. Some celebrities, some sports stars, musicians. I met David Schwimmer in a McDonald's drive-thru. He cussed me out. I'll tell you that story later. Um, I saw Justin Timberlake in L.A. next to me in his baller G-Wagon. Uh, really cool. I, I, I met T.I. in the airport in, in, a, in, a, in the Delta Lounge here in Atlanta. Like, I met celebrities. When you tell someone you've met a celebrity, what's the first question they ask? What were they like? Right? Like when, when, when you met a celebrity, they don't want to know the facts. Like what movies were they in? Like, you know that. Like it's, it's Justin Timberlake. What does he do? He sings. You know that. But they go, give me the inside scoop. What was he really like? Isn't that our nature? Like we want to know behind the scenes. What was that person really like? And that's sort of what we want to know about Jesus. What was Jesus really like? I got the stats. I got the history. What was Jesus really like? Now, I don't know what you're interactions with the person of Jesus have been. I don't know what the picture you have in your head of who Jesus is or who you've interacted with that have, that's claimed the name of Jesus. I don't know. But I want to give you a clear picture of Jesus. What was he really like? And I could pick one of many stories throughout his earthly 33 years, but I want to pick one of my favorites. It's the story of Zacchaeus. And if your grandma used to drag you to church, there's a song in your head right now. That's probably politically incorrect. Zacchaeus was a wee little man. I don't think you can call people that. If you didn't grow up in church, it's super weird. Don't worry about it. See, we're going to be in Luke 19 for a second. I want you to see what Jesus was really like. I want to put flesh and heart to the facts. Jesus claimed to be the God of the universe. And he could have spent his time on earth doing anything he wants. He could have taken over any country. He could have led any government. He could have owned any business or company. He could have made us all his slaves and we could have been owned and, and driven by him. But what did Jesus do with the time he had? I want to give you a glimpse. I want to give you a picture of what Jesus was like. So here's the story of Zacchaeus. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus was a chief tax collector and he was wealthy. Pause. Zacchaeus was a tax collector. We don't love the IRS right now, but back then it was even worse. The way it used to work is if you were a tax collector, what they would do is they would hire someone locally from the town they lived in because they knew where everyone hid their money. And the government would say, listen, you know all the secrets. You go get all the taxes we require Anything else you take above and beyond that is yours. Think about how much you would hate that person. They know where all your money is stashed, and they come, and they take taxes for the government, and they say, also, give me 5% more. And then this person got rich off of that. That's who Zacchaeus was. He was not liked in the town he was in. So Jesus shows up to Jericho, and there was a man named Zacchaeus. He wanted to see, Zacchaeus wanted to see who Jesus was. But because he was short slash wee little man, he could not see over the crowd. And I think it was more than that. 
I don't think it was just he's short. There are other short people. I think the people shouldered him out. Like, we don't want you even near us. So what did Zacchaeus do? So he climbed a sycamore fig tree to see Jesus that was coming this way. And Jesus, the God of the universe, walking down a real street. And he notices Zacchaeus up in the tree. And here's what Jesus says. Zacchaeus, come down immediately. You are condemned to death because everyone hates you. That's the JB version. That's not the real Bible version. That's not what he said. He said, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. Don't miss how profound this is. The God of the very universe noticed the most hated man in the town and said, I'm coming to your house. This is profound because in this story, you and I are Zacchaeus, by the way. We, we always like to see ourselves as the hero of the story. In this story, you and I are Zacchaeus. It's, it's really good news because what Jesus did with his time on earth is he said, listen, I'm going to go to the house of a sinner. I want you to see it. Jesus could have taken any seat. Jesus could have sat at any table. Jesus had the power to do anything he wanted. And he had 33 short years on earth, three years of ministry. And what Jesus decided to do was he decided to pull up a chair at the table of a sinner and say, listen, I'm coming to your house for lunch today. This is mind boggling. The God of the universe sat and enjoyed a meal with the chief sinner of the town. Jesus said, Zacchaeus, come down. I must go to your house. So Zacchaeus came down at once and welcomed him gladly. I want you to see the response of the people in verse 7. All the people saw this and began to mutter, he has gone to be the guest of a sinner. All of the religious people were ticked. Like, how is this Jesus guy, does he not know who he's going to, going to have a meal with? Does he not know where he's pulling his chair up? Surely that's not what he meant to do. And yet Jesus had one life. One moment in this town of Jericho, and this is what he does with it. What is Jesus like? He's like a God who willingly pulls up a chair at the table with sinners. See, Zacchaeus in this story shows us what is Jesus really like? That's what he's like. And when, when we say the word Jesus or God in our culture, it can be so divisive because it's been hijacked and spun we think of God as this judgmental God off at a distance that is, takes all the fun away and judges people and says, follow the rules. And yet, when Jesus took on human flesh, he painted a picture that's very different of his heavenly father. This is, his heaven, this is what his heavenly father is like. And what happened at lunch? Zacchaeus stood up and he said to Jesus, he said, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. And Jesus said to Zacchaeus, today salvation has come to this house because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the son of man, that's Jesus, came to seek and to save the lost. Jesus is way more interested in seeking and saving the lost than preserving religious systems, preserving religious customs, 
preserving religious rules. That's what Jesus was like. You see, Jesus flipped everything on its head. In that moment, Jesus flipped everything upside down. That's why people were grumbling. They're going, Jesus, you don't get it. This is not how things work here. We don't hang out with sinners. We don't hang out with bad people. And yet Jesus flipped it upside down. See, he invited people to live in a new kingdom, the kingdom of heaven, not the kingdom of earth, not through political power, but through spiritual power, not by removing yourself from the world, but by being salt and light in the world. Jesus coming in human flesh flipped everything on its head. And the story of Zacchaeus shows us that Jesus moved things from a religious pursuit to a relationship with a person. God came down in human flesh. See, Jesus' ministry subverted the stories, the beliefs, the actions of the religious movements and replaced them with something better. Jesus' vision was a scandalous one. That God would leave heaven and spend time around the sinners of this earth. That's what Jesus is like. He ain't afraid to be around sinners. He's not afraid to get his hands dirty in your mess. You, you can't do enough bad things that he won't pull up a chair with you. That's who Jesus is. And if that's who Jesus is, we have to answer the question of so what? Like if that's who he is, then, then so what? Here's the first of two things we have to wrestle down, the so what? First is this. We should approach each other with compassion. If that's how Jesus treated Zacchaeus, that's how Jesus invites us to treat each other. The incarnation of God, the fact that God left heaven and came here, he dealt with us in compassion, thank God. Because <laughs> if he had dealt with us the way we deserved, things would have gone very badly. He dealt with us with compassion, and therefore Jesus invites us to deal with each other with compassion. But the problem with that word again, that word has been hijacked. What does it mean to be compassionate in this culture? How, how do you show compassion? We've got definitions all over the place. I think the book of John verse 117 gives us a very crystal clear definition. What does it mean for us to deal with each other with compassion? For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. I would define compassion as grace and truth. Let's, let's see how Jesus dealt with Zacchaeus. When Jesus saw Zacchaeus up in the tree, did he publicly condemn Zacchaeus? No. Everyone knew that that was the, the worst dude in town. Like, that's the tax collector. He's a thief. We all hate him. What did Jesus do? Did he go, get out of the tree. I condemn you. Get down here. Everyone would have applauded it. Yes, he deserves it. He didn't. He did not publicly condemn him. Equally, when he sat down, when Jesus pulled up a chair, did he privately condone his sin. No. How do we know that? Because Zacchaeus repented of his sin. See, godly compassion holds truth fully and holds grace fully. And the combination of truth and grace almost always leads to repentance. So as we deal with each other, what Jesus invites us into is to say, listen, we don't condemn, we don't condone. We show godly compassion. Compassion without truth is condoning. Compassion without truth is condoning. Our culture leans this way right now. You've seen it. 
We have combat compassion and we bring all heart, all grace and no truth. And we, we call ourselves loving. We call ourselves accepting. And we're only halfway to godly compassion. Listen, how dark does your heart have to be to condone sin knowing what the wages of sin leads to? How much do you have to hate somebody to allow them to sit and all you do is offer grace and never offer truth? There's no such thing as that's just a nice old lady down the street. She'll figure it out. If she doesn't know Jesus, she's dead spiritually. How, how much do you have to not care? How, how dead inside do you have to be to only condone, not to bring truth? And then you call it loving in our culture. I love you too much to not tell you the truth. But equally, compassion without grace is condemning. And as we watch our culture sort of drift from the things of God, we can become so tempted in the church to watch it happen and to leave grace at the door and just start preaching and shouting, this is truth. And then you call yourself a prophet. Prophets were hated. That's why everyone hates me. No, they kind of don't like you because you're a jerk. Don't, don't, don't spiritualize being a jerk and use the word, I'm a prophet. No, you're not. You, you, you don't get to bring all truth and no grace. And we do it because it's so much faster. Listen, if this is the table, how much faster is it for us to walk by and go, condemn that. Got him, told him, prophet. Hey, that's wrong, that's sin. You're going to hell, told him, and you're done. And how easy is it to walk by and go, hey, you do you. You do your truth, all right, love you. Walk by and you're done. It's so much easier to wash our hands of the person by condemning or condoning. But what takes the greatest investment is to pull up a chair and to have godly compassion, enter a relationship, enter a conversation, bring truth and grace. That takes time. It's messy. It's costly. And yet Jesus only had 33 years on the earth, and that's what he gave his life to. Church. What's broken this culture is we stop pulling up a chair. We've replaced pulling up a chair for making a post. We've replaced pulling up a chair for walking by and saying, it's okay, you do you. And you do you, that's your truth, boo-boo. All right, you do what you got to do. That's what we do. And yet Jesus never let grace go. He was fully grace. And Jesus never let truth go. Fully truth. And when those two things are held those two things produce godly compassion. Listen, God never lowered the bar of truth. He lowered himself to us to bring us up to that bar. So we don't get to lower that bar. The incarnation of Jesus screams that if he will sit at your table, and he did if you're a follower of Jesus, while you were a mess, he pulled up a chair at your table. If that's true, and it's our calling to pull up a chair at other people's tables and bring truth and grace, not condemn, not condone, but bring godly compassion. And it's going to be messier, more costly, more time consuming. But godly compassion leads to repentance just like it did.
for Zacchaeus, just like it did for me. So the first so what is we can approach each other with compassion. But the truth that probably changed me more than any other truth in this side of this theology is that we can approach God with confidence. Listen to me. Jesus stepped out of heaven, took on human flesh. And because of that, we can approach God with confidence. I'm going to read you my favorite, at least top three passage in all of scripture. And I'm going to go slow. Because this should move you. This should stir something in your soul. This is not a truth that you get to go, I'll, I'll figure out what I'll do with that tomorrow. No, I think the Holy Spirit wants to move us right here, right now. Here's Hebrews 4. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, which is Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. The, the fact that Jesus took on human flesh and stepped into the human condition, it means that he actually understands us. Like if you have a pet dog, you don't really understand the dog. If you could live a, a day in the life of the dog, you're like, oh, I get it. And that's sort of what happened with Jesus, that when Jesus died, he rose again. And then when he ascended to heaven, he's at the right hand of the father, still in his human resurrected human body, bearing the scars of the cross, standing next to his father so that when we pray to God, we're not praying to a distant deity that doesn't understand we have a high priest, a go-between between us and the Father that actually gets it. If you're a student, Jesus knows the pressures of passing a test because God went to school. Just let this settle in your soul. If you're walking through a difficult season, you have a loneliness in you. Jesus experienced loneliness. God understands loneliness. If you're walking through a season of sorrow or loss, Jesus lost friends while on earth. He knows, in, in scripture it says Jesus wept. He knows what it means to grieve loss. Jesus knows what temptation feels like. He knows how complicated it can be and the evil schemes of the devil make everything look good and how hard it is to fight temptation. And so when you pray to God, Jesus is at the right hand of the Father and he hears your prayers. And it's like, it's, this is not good theology, but I want the picture in your head. It's like we pray, oh God, help me on this test. And Jesus goes, hey God, let me vouch for that one. That's a thing down there. That matters. Oh God, I'm having such a tough day. God, I'm, I'm, in, I'm in this lonely, isolated place. God, I need something. And Jesus is like our man on the inside saying, listen, God, this, this matters. You, I, I get it. I've been there. This, this matters. Let's, let's, let's bring heaven into that situation. So this changes the way we pray. It changed how I pray. I have a high priest that actually can empathize, 
who's walked the same walk we have. See, God actually gets it. And I, I used to think this, and I've had people say it to me, that's too small of a thing to bring to God. Other people have other things going, I don't need to, I don't need to bring that to God. And the fact that Jesus left heaven and took on human flesh says, listen, no. Jesus actually understands it. He can empathize with your circumstances, your situation. So we ask questions like, what do bad things happen here? And why does evil exist? And why do I have to experience sadness and heartache? And, and God didn't answer that question with a platitude. He answered it with a person, Jesus. He said, I'm going to step into the human experience. And I'm going to return back to heaven. And I'm going to be your intermediary between the Father and you. And therefore, we can approach God with courage. Because the same God that would pull up a chair at your table invites you to bring the weight of what you carry, the pressures you carry, the sadness you have, the theology behind the hypostatic union God-man. That we now have someone in heaven that gets it. And sure, we need to pull up chairs in other people's lives and we need to interact with people with godly compassion, but we also can go to the Father with courage. See, up until this point in history, God was known from a distance. He was obeyed through rules and laws, and he was truly unknowable at a personal level. Then Jesus showed up, the God of the universe in human flesh, and he says, you could have a relationship with the living God. He was fully God, fully man, seeking and saving the lost. That is who Jesus is. See, in Mark 8, when Jesus asked the disciples, who do they say I am? Prophet, great teacher. Then he turned it, who do you say I am? And Peter said, you are Messiah. C.S. Lewis says it this way. With the person of Jesus, you can shut him up as a liar. You can dismiss him as a lunatic. Or you can bow to him as Lord. But one thing you cannot do is ignore his claims to be God. He's either a liar, a lunatic, or a Lord. So maybe the question that God would ask you is simply this. Who do you say that he is? That's the most important question you'll ever wrestle down. Because Jesus claimed, fully God, fully man, here to seek and to save the lost. So if you're at 12 Stone Home, would you stick with us for just two more minutes? Across the campuses, campus passes are getting up. We're going to hand the service over to you. My prayer for us as a church is that we would leave with a clear picture of who Jesus was. Campus pastors, why don't you take it? Thank you again for spending time with us today. A special thanks to those of you who generously give through 12 Stone. It is because of you that this ministry is possible. And if you want to learn more about 12 Stone, make sure you follow us on social at 12 Stone Church and check out a location or a watch party near you. And if you enjoyed the podcast, you could subscribe, share it with your friends, hit the share button, or even take a screenshot and throw it in your social stories. And make sure to tag 12 Stone Church. Let it be a blessing to somebody else. Thank you again, and we'll catch you on the next one.